This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Chase and Scout. Have you been searching for the perfect amulet or talisman to carry you through your day and guide you at night? Check out Chase and Scout. It's studio-created jewelry, which means each piece is individually made to order just for you. Handcrafted for the strange and the beautiful, find your personal power piece online at chaseandscout.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. Happy New Year, everyone. It is 2018, and I have a really good feeling about this year. We started it on a full moon, so hopefully you're feeling nice and supercharged. And numerically speaking, in Chinese mythology, the number eight is very lucky. And in Judaism, the number 18 is one of the most magical numbers there is. 18 is associated with Chai. That's right, 10 years of Hebrew school, got my Chai going on. And Chai is the word for life. So some of you might be familiar with the toast L'chaim, or the Fiddler on the Roof song. And L'chaim is my favorite toast because it means to life. So 2018 is a year that promises to be full of vitality and creative energy. And boy, do we need it. Because we have lots of capital W work to get done. But first, we gotta get prepared. I did several rituals for the new year. Some with friends, some with Matt, some by myself. And one of the simplest things you can do is to set an intention for the year. It can be as simple as choosing a word that you want to carry with you throughout the year as a sort of touchstone, a north star that you can keep coming back to in order to make sure that you're on the right track. I have a few things this year that I'm going to be focusing on. And a lot of those intentions are related to the body not about weight loss or even exercise, though those things can certainly be valid, but rather about more fully inhabiting my body and paying attention to how it feels and what it's telling me. I'm someone who can be prone to second guessing and ruminating and overthinking. And as an air sign especially, I live a lot in my head. And that serves me at times for sure, but sometimes it just sets me spinning into space and picturing every possible outcome and overanalyzing what my next steps should be. And before you know it, I've lived out years of scenarios in my head before making a move. So what I'm committed to this year is to more fully trust how I feel in my body instead. I recently made a big decision about an exciting creative partnership that I'm going to be announcing very soon. But as with many big decisions, I had doubts and fears and lots of anxiety that came up around this. But when I met with the person who was to be my main partner on this project, I noticed how I felt around her. And the fact of the matter is, I was excited and energized. I could literally feel the blood rushing through me as I talked to her, and a giddy electricity that was more about vibes than it was about reasoning. My body felt good around her, and so I decided to take the leap and say yes. 
And that leads me to another thing that I'm focusing on this year, and that's the word mirth. There are a couple of goddesses that connect mirth or glee with the body, and I'm going to be channeling them both in 2018. The first one is the Greek deity Babo. Babo is best known as a character in the famous Persephone myth. So as the story goes, once Persephone is abducted into the underworld by Hades, her mother Demeter, the goddess of the harvest, is absolutely beside herself. And Demeter enters a deep depression, so much so that no crops grow and there's a dark blight on the earth while she's in mourning. And Demeter ends up in the court of King Silius, where she meets Babo, a middle-aged woman and servant to the king. Babo witnesses Demeter's grief, and she begins telling the filthiest jokes imaginable, and eventually ends up lifting her skirts and flashing Demeter in a sort of body dance. And this makes Demeter laugh, and that gives her the fortitude to finally get up the gumption to leave the kingdom and speak to Zeus about negotiating the release of her daughter from Hades. And thus the cycle of agriculture begins to thrive again. Babo is an amazing symbol of the sacred and the profane being one and the same, and her aging body is a tool of sexuality and humor and irreverence. Thanks to her, the vitality of Demeter, and thus the entire world is brought back. Now, I've always loved the Babo section of the Demeter myth, but a fantastic synchronicity happened while I was working on the last episode of The Witch Wave. Some of you might recall that I spoke about Amaterasu, the Shinto goddess of the sun. And while I was researching her, lo and behold, I came across a really similar story to the Babo story. As legend goes, Amaterasu hides in a cave after her brother has been essentially harassing her and her handmaidens. There's a flayed horse involved and he's just being a huge dick. So she hides in this cave and because she's the sun goddess, darkness descends over the earth and all of these demons come out and start to take over. The other gods do everything they can think of to try and lure her out of the cave, but to no avail. Finally, the goddess Amano Uzume starts to entertain the group, and she gets up and does a very bawdy, hilarious dance. Some say it's a striptease. And in a lot of accounts, she also, you guessed it, lifts up her skirt and flashes her nethers at the gods. They all start laughing their asses off, and the uproar is so great that Amaterasu eventually decides to come out and see what the hell is so funny. And when she exits the cave, the sun comes back and the demons disperse. So Babo and Amano Uzumi are two deities of mirth who are unapologetically funny as fuck and unselfconsciously present in their bodies. And thanks to them, the world is illuminated and fertile and joyful. And that leads me to our guest, Tamara Santibanez. She's a tattoo artist, so her primary canvas is the body. And she has all kinds of insightful things to say about how to use the magic of tattooing to reclaim the self, heal inner pain, and embody one's true identity. But before we get to our conversation, first we're going to check in and see what's come through on the Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Lara wrote me a beautiful email. And I won't read the whole thing here, but this section in particular I thought might resonate with other listeners. She says, 
I always appreciate your perspective of loving magic unabashedly in all forms, from highbrow to lowbrow, academic to colloquial, pop culture to history. I love magic in all those ways too, and you've helped establish a dialogue where all points of interest are valid and worthy of discussion. Well, Lara, I'm thrilled that that comes across in my work and particularly through the witch wave because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what it means to do magic or be interested in magic. Absolutely, there are thousands of books you can read and initiatory paths you can go through and complicated methods that you can study. And I absolutely encourage that for those of you who have the interest and ability. But if I'm being honest, some of the first images of magic I ever fell in love with were the cartoons of the 1980s that I grew up with. Shira and star fairies and rainbow bright. And of course, fairy tales and myths that I encountered too. But when I was little, I didn't care where the stories came from. I cared that I was being shown a vision of female-centered worlds with magic swords and wands and crystals where metamorphosis could take place. A lot of my readers and listeners who are younger than me tell me they first got into magic because of Harry Potter. And I have lots of magical friends who got hooked on it because of Led Zeppelin or metal bands or Dungeons and Dragons. Magic and art are symbolic systems. They're fueled by the imagination, and they have the potential to create real change within those who are open to their transformative powers. So whether you do an 18-month-long Abramelin ritual, or you just really like reading Sabrina the Teenage Witch comics, there's an entry point for you into the space of magic should you care to cross over. Now, on to my guest. Tamara Santibanez is a tattoo artist and fine artist living and working here in Brooklyn. Drawing from the worlds of fetish, punk, and Chicanx art, she's interested in exploring the way symbols and style-based cultural signifiers function as their own secret language. Tamara is also the founding editor of the independent publishing house Discipline Press, a multimedia venture dedicated to spotlighting subcultures and giving voice to the marginalized. Though we talk about pain, it was a great pleasure to host her here in my Brooklyn apartment. Tamara Santibanez, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. You have no idea. Yay! I'm so excited that you're here too. So you are a very multifaceted woman. You are a tattoo artist, which is um, the first identifier that I ever knew you as when we first met. Mm -hmm. And then as I've dug in deeper to everything that you're working on, you are a visual artist. You also run a press. How do you see your tattoo work, your visual artwork, and your publishing work to be related to each other? Are they pretty compartmentalized or is there a lot of bleed through in terms of your approach to each? They all inform each other in a lot of ways. I think they're constantly feeding into each other in no small part because tattooing is a really social job and introduces me to a lot of people. I've met a lot of people that I work with in other avenues through tattooing. Uh, it attracts a lot of like-minded individuals. The publishing really became a way for me to sort of try to put out or curate content that I was seeing or coming across in other areas or just people I was meeting whose work I thought was really exciting. I've developed an audience through tattooing and so I've been trying to figure out ways to, to use that most effectively and in ways that I can feel good about and that hopefully will feel exciting to other people that are looking at my work. I was getting a lot of questions from people like, oh, I saw you posted this documentary that you were watching. Where can I find that? How do you hear about this? Can you recommend me a book to read about this or that? So Discipline Press is a sort of a place those things can land in a lot of ways and a place that I can curate those things. And the through line between all of these different projects seems to be about 
counterculture, about an undercurrent, about the marginalized. Would you agree with that? Totally. You you kind of nailed it. I always say if I have to give my elevator pitch that it's about the experiences of people who are sort of doubly marginalized or marginalized within subculture. So it's about people who have these intersecting identities that are often by choice and often not. So, for example, you know, Chicanx punk music or LGBTQ folks within the prison system or queer or trans or non-binary folks in tattooing. Mm -hmm. And how do you see yourself in terms of that doubling? I mean, when you and I met, we met in the context of witchcraft, which we'll get into in a moment. But I've seen you identify as a witch publicly. And then, you know, you have your heritage, which I'd love to hear more about. You have your own identities in these different subcultures. So what kind of language do you use when you're describing yourself in terms of this doubling or tripling? Oh, that's such a, that's such a good question. And I talk, I talk about this with my clients endlessly because I, I find that they all have really similar experiences and, and perspectives. So I, first of all, I, I identify as Chicanx. I'm mixed race. I grew up in the South which is sort of a confusing place to come from sometimes. Um, Confusing in what way? Confusing in having grown up somewhere where it was very, in terms of demographics, it was very black and white. It was definitely conservative, religious. You know, my parents were an interracial couple. I was mixed race and I was also Latinx, which was just very rare there. There weren't a lot of Spanish speaking people around my mom also converted to Judaism, so she was a Mexican Jew, which was made it even so rarer. She converted <laughs> to Judaism because I read that you identify as Jewish Mexican somewhere. I, I thought I read that somewhere, and I was really fascinated by that combination. I, I mean, I would say I don't necessarily identify as Jewish, but it, it is in the background of my upbringing. And it's a funny thing because when I tell people that, everyone is so surprised. They're like, oh my God, a Mexican Jew. I think I've met one once before maybe it's pretty unusual also I identify as queer I'm part of the kink community I'm polyamorous I practice magic and in a lot of ways I, I feel like I hit a lot of subcultural uh, marks yeah, right you're taking a lot of boxes there I gotta taking say taking a lot Tamara. of boxes but but yeah those are all a, a big part of, of my life and how I, I identify and how I socialize and how I present too and when you're moving in the world do you find that you're shifting which hat you're wearing, so to speak? Or do you feel like you're always this multiplex, this multitude unto yourself? Ideally, we would all be able to be our complex selves 100% all of the time. I think the world we live in makes that difficult. And that plays into a lot of the things that I like to investigate. We make a lot of choices in our daily lives about how we're going to present, how we can use that to our advantage, how it might harm us to present a different way in a certain situation. A really good example is in working within the jail system in New York. I obviously, when I enter, I look really different than some other people who might be entering from the outside. I, I don't look like a lawyer, right? I have all sure. these tattoos and I work with youth offenders so that actually gives me an advantage where in, in if I'm going into maybe a boardroom at a corporation, having all these tattoos could be a disadvantage. In other situations, it's really helpful to not look like your typical adult. Um, <laughs> um, but in terms of like race or ethnic identity, I definitely am very white passing. That's something I'm really aware of, trying to unpack the ways that being light-skinned can give you a certain privilege of, in, in certain ways, being weirder, if that makes sense. You know, I think that because of the, the colorism and the racism that exists, people who are darker skinned can be stigmatized for certain forms of expression in ways that lighter skinned people are not, right? That's such an interesting take on it. So if I'm understanding correctly, you think that because you pass as having lighter skin that you can get away with more in terms of being aesthetically transgressive or transgressive in your lifestyle? I think that's true. I think that because women of color are sexualized often in a way that white women are not, 
you know, if you're lighter skin, you can play with the aesthetics of kink, for example, and maybe not have the repercussions or the stereotyping applied to you that a person of color might have. You know, with tattoos, for example, if you're a darker skinned person, you might be encountering stereotypes about criminality more. You know, if you're a white person, maybe people will ascribe to you that you are creative or artistic. It's the way that we see dreadlocks appropriated mm-hmm. or, or braids. You know, braids are having this moment where for people of color being told that that's an unprofessional hairstyle that's not allowed in their office whereas for white people borrowing it they're heralded as so creative or Mm -hmm, original mm -hmm. or um or edgy and that really comes into play with tattoos as well yeah so let's talk about your tattoo life so you are a tattoo artist and how long have you been doing that for it's been eight years now that i've been doing it professionally wow okay and you work at a place called saved in williamsburg which has just an incredible reputation and i was looking online and i noticed that the many tattoo artists looks like they're about like eight or nine Mm -hmm. at any given time And that it's a lot of female artists, first of all, which was really exciting to see. So do you have an experience at Saved as being part of, I don't know, a coven or a community of artists? How much are you guys interacting with each other? I think a lot. That is something that's pretty unique to the tattoo community, that you can have this space where artists are coming together on a daily basis, you're working around each other, you have someone in the room with you to bounce ideas off of or just grab for a quick, hey, can I have you take a look at this? And that's really invaluable. And the community that that is has been hired there, I think, is really intentional on the part of the owners. The two owners of the New York shop now are Stephanie Temez and Virginia Elwood, who are partners. They're really amazing. And the shop is definitely one of the more diverse shops that I've been in, in terms of race and gender and in terms of just uh, sexual identity. So it feels really good to have that be a space where I can be myself. And it's really not... That doesn't have to feel like a big declaration of any sort. Sure, sure. You were speaking off the mic earlier about how diverse the clientele tends to be too. Is that something that's just organically sort of sprung up? I think that is in large part because of clientele being more intentional about who they choose to get tattooed by now, which I, I see as being a somewhat recent phenomenon because of the way that the internet has changed tattooing. It's it's pretty fascinating actually. I think that we used to see the tattoo shop as sort of the sole site of access to tattooers, information about tattooing, accessing a selection of tattooers. So if you had your local shop, for example, like where I grew up in Georgia, you know that you can just go to that one shop and you're going to pick from the people who are there. And you might not even know that much about who's there and trust the recommendation of the person who's working at the desk. Nowadays, everyone follows tons of tattoo artists on Instagram. You can really do a lot of research on your own as a client and think about there. there is such a, a diverse population of people tattooing now, whereas you know, years ago, it was rare for even a woman to be tattooing. That's changed enormously, I think, in a very short amount of time. And so now clients can really choose for a number of reasons. It's not only who's closest to me, who's in my town, who has time tomorrow. It's what style of tattoo do I want? Do I want to get... I have a lot of people who are like, I really want to get tattooed by someone who's Latinx. I really want to get tattooed by a queer person. I have a listing on the Kink Aware Professionals directory as a Kink Aware tattoo artist. So that's another reason that people might come to me. And I think I think everyone at the shop has a similar mix of clientele of people who love their style, but they also appreciate them as a person and are seeking them out for that that type seems like such an intimate relationship and you know it's literally inviting someone who presumably starts off being a stranger in a lot of cases to be touching your it's body vulnerable. it's yes. very vulnerable not just touching the body but inflicting pain on the body and inflicting oh God, pain yeah. in a you know relatively permanent way what made you decide to become a tattoo artist Man, when I when I look back over my life, I think it makes so much sense that I got into this as a job. But when I was younger, I knew that I wanted to be an artist of some kind, but I really thought I wanted to go into fashion design. And I was going along that path in school and I hated it. I really hated it. So I ended up dropping out for a while and going back for printmaking, which I think 
makes more sense as a transition. I mean, I think that tattooing and printmaking are quite similar in the practice of them. But, you know, I was always that kid that was drawing on my shoes, drawing on my friends with jelly pens, drawing a full sleeve on my arm during class when I was bored. And then once my friends were old enough to start getting tattooed, because most of my friends were older, they would ask me to draw stuff up for them. And I would go with them and watch them get tattooed, which now I know that's kind of annoying, right? To have your friend draw your tattoo, like just have your tattooer draw it for you. But, um, but at the time I thought that, that was so cool. And so, yeah. And then I, and then, you know, just being punk, you're doing homemade tattoos, you're doing stick and pokes on yourself and your friends. So that sort of practice was always around and yeah after a while it just made sense for me to try to really learn how to do it i mean i mean i i saw tattooing as magical when i first started getting professional tattoos by people who were really skilled at it like watching them mix the inks and the ink caps i was like wow this is this is like alchemy it's beautiful and i have no idea how you're doing what you're doing even though i'm watching you do it it's like a sleight of hand in a way and my clients, I think, have a similar reaction where they're just baffled. They're like, how do you know where the, there's ink everywhere? How do you know what you're doing? Do you just, you just know? And it kind of is that way. But when I first saw that being done, I was like, I want to know. I want to know those secrets. I want to know how to do that magic. So let's talk a little about the relationship between tattooing and magic, because I see so many connections. (laughs) I studied anthropology in college, Mm -hmm. and there was an anthropologist named Victor Turner who wrote lots and lots of books, uh, but one most famously was called The Forest of Symbols. And he was one of the first anthropologists to really talk about rites of passage and going into a liminal space and studying tribes in, I believe, it was Central Africa and talking about the ways in which these rites of passage would transform the person going mm-hmm. through it, would transform the culture that they were then being reintegrated back into. And I also started thinking about just the idea of magical symbols being right. emblazoned on your skin. So do you have these kinds of frameworks or approaches when you're going into the room and you're having this interaction with somebody? Totally. I think tattooing can be really transformative. I think I would speculate that part of the reason tattooing has exploded in popularity in the way that it has today is not just because of it being more accepted socially, but also because we have all this technology that is lessening our human connection in certain ways and i think that people are almost craving a a real life experience they're craving a tangible way to mark a period in time rather than just putting it in this into this sort of ephemeral digital sphere i think that people are really looking for ways to connect right now and i think that tattooing is is that it has always been that do you think it has a spiritual texture to it Yeah, absolutely. I think some people are very aware of that. I think some people are really intentional about engaging in it that way. Some people maybe less so, but I think that it still serves a similar purpose. And some tattooers can be very dismissive of that aspect of it. And that's something that I find myself being frustrated by. I mean, it's maybe I shouldn't say frustrated is a word. I think there's a million different ways to be a tattoo artist these days and none of them are necessarily right or wrong but sometimes I find myself being a little disappointed when I hear people saying oh you know we're not here for the client's sentimentality we don't really want to hear the backstory of why they're getting the tattoo we're just here to apply the tattoo and give you the best tattoo that you can get wow that's so interesting so it's almost like they see themselves in like a guild or they're artisans from a sense of labor and craft but not necessarily in terms of the context or the symbolism or the story behind totally. it. Totally and I hear that I hear that for sure I think tattooing is a craft first and foremost that's the that's the approach that I had when I got into it I came from a printmaking background so I really had that craft mentality of wanting to approach it from a technical aspect of wanting to be a part of that community but I think that has shifted a little bit now those things are obviously still important to me and the quality of my craft is important but like I was saying earlier I see tattooing for for me and for my clients almost from a social work perspective it can become really about creating space for an experience about having an exchange about validating feelings that people are having not everyone wants to do that and that is fine 
Um, some people just want to look pretty or look cool. But look cool. Or some people just want to do their tattoo and be and be done with that. And maybe they don't even want to chat at all with their client. And that is what it is. You know, I'm sure a different kind of clientele seeks those people out. But the people that come to me, I hear so many things from them that I'm really honored to have them share with me. And so I really try to have that in mind and be open to that approach. Yeah, we, we talk a lot on the show about adornment as a sort of magic you know there's a lot of connections between the ways in which we decorate our bodies and fairy glamours and right. you know all kinds of ways in which the signals that we're sending out transform how we're perceived but also transform our own energy and the way that we perceive ourselves yet with a tattoo I don't necessarily see that as just beauty or fashion because you can't discard it. Yes, you can right. get it removed at a high cost. But, but in <laughs> right. general, you know, it, it is supposed to be permanent. And that reminds me a little bit more of sigil magic. So, yes. so for listeners who might not be familiar with sigils, a sigil is a charged image that's used for a magical intention. And it has its roots in kind of medieval ceremonial magic. So certain symbols would be said to conjure an angel or a demon. It then got popularized again in the early 20th century by an artist and a magician named Austin Osmond Spare, who would do these incredible symbolic drawings, which were then meant to be activated and conjure some some manifestation or some change or some spell work into the artist's life. So I'm wondering if any of that resonates with you when it comes to tattoos. Absolutely. I think from of what you just said, the two terms that I really fixated on are transformational, right? Tattooing absolutely has a transformational effect on you, both literally and I want to say psychically and activated, right? I think the interesting thing about tattooing is that oftentimes we're working with an existing set of symbolism, right? We have the standbys of tattoo images. If you asked anyone, they could name to you five things that are really common tattoo images. And those things can mean any number of things to an infinite number of people. A rose, for example, depending on how you choose to activate this symbol of a rose, it could be a beautiful tattoo of love and devotion, or it could be a memorial tattoo for grief. Are people starting to request more over overtly magical tattoos from you like things that are drawing from witchcraft or ceremonial magic and how do you feel about doing that kind of work on people i think that happens a little bit less than people might imagine maybe because like i said earlier the magical practice is maybe the least public of my identities but it, it has happened before i sometimes will have clients who will bring things that i don't necessarily I mean I because I do take it very seriously and sometimes I'll have clients that I think that maybe they aren't taking it quite as seriously as they should be like um I had one client bring a bunch of different demon sigils and wanted to get them as filler on his arm or among his other tattoos and I was like are you sure you want to do this you I don't know if I want to do this because we're essentially inscribing it in blood this is like a blood ritual <laughs> exactly and did he go through with it or he did he did he was like no they're all they're all good ones don't worry but I I don't know I, I still think about that I'm like how's that guy doing these days well yeah it reminds me of like the trend of people getting Chinese symbols on their body without necessarily knowing what the symbol is for or or doing like full research on that where right. you're like maybe you want to read about this before you put it on your body permanently yeah or the tarot card tattoos that's definitely another one that i think is pretty popular yeah are there certain cards that make you nervous to put on people's bodies that not necessarily i mean i'm not a big tarot head <laughs> so i tend to just trust that if people have a strong connection to the card i'm, I'm gonna trust their judgment and getting it tattooed uh, and people tend to share that with me. And usually I'm like, okay, I hear you. I hear where yeah. you're coming from. Yeah. The personal activation, I think that's a really important and crucial part of it. The, the energy that the individual brings and the intention that they have that they're bringing to a certain image really shapes what that tattoo is going to mean to them, how they're going to wear it, what it's going to mean to the outside observer. And the transformational aspect of tattooing is it really can't be overstated how how important that is and what a large role it plays. I think that, like I said before, my my clientele probably at this point is 85 percent people of color, queer folks, trans folks, women. And 
a lot of trauma comes up around getting tattooed for for people I think or just just trauma from existing in, in the world and tattooing can be a really important way to reclaim power over your own body it can be a really powerful way to assert values that are permanent to you or feel significant to you it can be a way to move past trauma that you've experienced it's also so devotional i mean there's a commitment that you are making you are committing to this image in a similar way that when you're creating a sigil you are committing to the intention behind that image and to whatever the results are that come up from that creation of that image totally yeah and tattooing can have a similar end result you know you can have weird consequences of getting tattooed that you might not have anticipated or that the meaning of that tattoo can change for you over time you might relate to it differently when you're 35 than you did when you were 18 when you got it and that I think is a really interesting thing how often are people coming to you for their first ever tattoo because that to me seems like such a rite of passage the first time that you're experiencing this oh yeah I am I would say not as much as I used to get it a lot more at my old shop. People would come in and get small things sort of impulsively, get their first tattoo. The people who come to me now, because I am appointment only, are definitely more intentional about it. And it's something that they've really thought through. It's less of a of a split second or impulse decision. So I have been doing a lot of people's first tattoos recently. And it's an honor, really. I, I think that's not too dramatic to say that it's just a huge honor taking their tattoo virginity yeah and and being able to guide somebody through that and having the bedside manner to make them feel great about it to be able to sit through it to endure the physical process of it and that you're they're trusting you really with all of that experience so talking about the physical process i mean it's a painful process and we recently had Dia Dynasty on the show, who's a mm-hmm. dominatrix. And it strikes me that there's a lot of similarity between, to some degree, the work that you do and the work that someone like Dia might do, and that you're trafficking in pain as a transformative vehicle. Yes, totally. And so do you think the pain part of it is significant in terms of its meaning like if we were able to invent a painless tattoo (laughs) would it have as much transformational meaning do you think i don't think so i think there's a sense of having earned it in a a basic way like you said there is a ritual aspect to it and I, i say this to my clients all the time and i always offer the disclaimer that it may sound cheesy but i think that you learn a lot about yourself through getting tattooed I think that you learn a lot about your mental fortitude because it really is a mental challenge in my eyes more than a physical challenge and it really forces you to be present in your body. I have a lot of clients who tell me this is the first time I've really sat down and not had to look at my phone or look at emails. This is the only time I've had for myself all week. Wow. And it's funny to think of it that way because tattooing, right, it is a painful process and to think Oh, the only time that you've had for yourself is when you have this appointment to be hurt and poked with needles. Um, but it, it really is a time that you have to be physically present. You have to be very mindful about how you feel, what you're going through, find out what methods you're going to use to cope with that. Do you want to talk through it? Do you want to be really quiet and just go inside your head? Do you want to listen to music that's important to you? Definitely, there's a lot of similarities with what I do and with, with what Dia does. And I have a lot of clients who are also sex workers or kink professionals and I talk to them a lot about this where it's such an existing power dynamic that you're walking into when you walk into a tattoo shop you have to hand over a lot of trust to the people who are there that they're going to take good care of you and do what it is that you want them to do to you and there is a lot of consent involved Mm -hmm. in ways that are similar to BDSM I mean I, I see a lot of overlap with my own kink practice and there's a lot of trust that I have to instill in the client that they're going to do what they're there to do. And that if they do get to a point where they need to stop or take a break, that they're going to let me know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty obsessed with candles. And that's why I'm over the moon to tell you about Mithras candles. They are my favorite 
They're made of pure beeswax and handcrafted by my extremely magical pals in Philadelphia. They have a gorgeous drip style that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. They smell like honey-scented paradise, and they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Mithras candles are a perfect addition to any home or sacred space, and I can't recommend them more highly. They're available now at MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Tamara Santibanez. Now, you and I met because I was teaching these ritual workshops at Observatory, this place I used to co-run in Brooklyn a number of years ago, and you were getting into your witchcraft practice, or at least sharpening a witchcraft practice that perhaps was there already, and I am wondering, where are you at now with your identity as a witch, and how is that in relation to the work that you're doing as an artist, whether a tattoo or a visual art overall? Yeah, it's funny. I think I put a lot of things about my identity out there um, very publicly, which is a great place to be at. But it's funny to think that of all of them, the magic or witchcraft aspect might be the one I share the least about, maybe because it does feel the most personal. It's definitely a practice that I engage in on a more solitary level. You know, I have altars all over my house. I have an altar in my studio, at my shop that all my clients see when they come in. Is that altar in your shop devoted to a certain deity or what's the intention behind that altar in the tattoo shop? I like to grow them a little more organically. I always like to have a plant. I like to have something living. I like to have different elements represented. I like to have some crystals or stones to help with the energy in the station especially protective some protective stones because you are coming into contact with a lot of people's energy what are some of the stones that you have on your altar there um black tourmaline is a big one i use a lot of that i like having rose quartz too just rose quartz is so underrated i feel like it's like kind of the basic b of crystals and yet i'm like no it's really powerful and beautiful and it's about self-love and it's so gentle and strong yeah yeah i I've heard a lot of conflicting opinions about, I mean, and maybe this speaks more to my own personal relationship to the outside world, but I've heard a lot of conflicting advice about trying to block other people's energy or like close yourself off to outside forces versus trying to fortify yourself enough that you don't really need to close yourself off. Do you mean in general or as a tattoo artist? Um, I mean in general. Yeah, you know, like the the full sponge approach maybe, right? That if you're fortified enough individually, you won't need so many barriers or defenses against the outside world because there's not enough room for things to seep in around the edges. But I do find, and I don't know if this is specifically because of tattooing or because of me as a person and my like Scorpio risingness but I find that people perceive me as a really intense person people are really drawn to that people maybe want to know things about me or presume to know things about me I've had some weird stalker situations mm. um things like that and I, I find it personally really important to be protective around my own energy and try to maintain very real barriers whether that is a psychic barrier or a physical barrier or a professional barrier and to be more intentional about where I choose to open that up or keep it closed. So especially in my workspace, I try to maintain a lot of that. So the altar is as much for you as it is for the clientele. The altar, I would say, is primarily for me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I always put money in it. I'm a big believer in putting money in my altars. I always have a Santa Muerte. That's a big figure that I work with a lot. So for listeners who aren't familiar with Santa Muerte, that is the primarily Mexican, if I'm not mistaken, deity that looks like a skeleton and is Saint Death, essentially. And why are you so attracted to that deity? Because I've read you talking about Santa Muerte before. Yeah, the thing that makes her a really unique figure is First of all, that she exists in this sort of gray area where she's a folk saint that intersects with Catholicism quite a lot. The Catholic Church officially condemns Santa Muerte worship as satanic, but that does not stop Mexican Catholics from having her around, right? She's sort of the foil a lot of the time to the Virgin of Guadalupe or the Virgin Mary where maybe you are wanting some things that you can't ask the Virgin Mary for. 
But you're gonna ask Santa Muerte because she would clutch her pearls. Yes, yeah. So (laughs) Santa Muerte is a lot about um, people asking for things or help or serving people who maybe are underserved in other ways. She's considered kind of the patron saint of folks who are incarcerated, um, of queer folks. She's associated heavily with kind of criminal underworld. I think she's gotten a little bit of a of a rep as being associated with kind of like narco trafficking. but that's kind of what people oh she's also major for scorned women or women who want to keep their man so like kind of like vengeful love love magic what i love about it is that i i don't know i don't feel bad asking her for material help and also about things that are maybe considered sort of subcultural or underworld like things things like tattooing things like kink things like queerness and i work with people who are incarcerated so that's a nice connection to to be able to have yeah you brought that up before what sort of work are you doing this was at rikers island is that right yeah so that's one of the things that i do i started very by chance working at rikers teaching in the youth offender division as a community arts partner teaching a tattoo drawing workshop there so for the last year year and a half i've taught 18 to 21 year olds doing drawing classes and we've used tattooing as sort of a basis of the drawing that we're working with but that became a really transformative experience for me and since then i've shifted a lot of my focus to doing that and we're doing some projects through discipline press that also center work by currently incarcerated artists we're releasing in january a stationary set that is designed by 80 different artists who are currently incarcerated wow and they they're all accompanied by a biography of the artist and their address if you want to correspond with them the idea is to try to encourage pen pal relationships which is another thing that we are doing we're maintaining a pen pal database and hosting pen pal nights so that folks can read the letters that we get and reach out as a form of support so that's been a really interesting experience and it's changed a lot of the work that i do that sounds incredible really really powerful it strikes me that a lot of the work you're doing is in that space of shadow and there's this kind of i don't know reclamation going on of taking the underside or the marginalized or the darker parts of society or desire and bringing them if not entirely into the light, at least out of the space of shame. And I'm I'm wondering (laughs) how that started for you because I feel like shamelessness is such a powerful principle of the icon of the witch specifically. Mm -hmm. But in general, I think the work that we're called to do lately is around dissolving shame especially in terms of feminine and marginalized energy that is such a a beautiful way to sum it up really it's funny that you say that because i try to always get an astrology chart reading done around my birthday every year and i got one done by someone different this year i had always been going to a friend he's a cis male although i love him anyway (laughs) but but shout out to cis males (laughs) (laughs) but but this year i got a reading from someone i met through tattooing them actually this person named avery who is queer and they brought such a different and nuanced reading to my chart and i think it was really exactly what i needed at that time but they said something to that effect that um because of you know my scorpio rising in my chart i'm I'm a taurus sun by the way (laughs) Um, okay yeah taurus sun aquarius moon but i'm an aquarius sun hey yeah but they were saying because of that i'm very comfortable in shadowy spaces they said it in a really funny way i want to say they were like it's like you love being in hell but it's like a really cute hell that's beautiful and comfy and it has all the things and people that you like oh my god i love that (laughs) and that actually brings me back just briefly to santa muerte because i have a tiny santa muerte on my altar but she's wearing this like psychedelic rainbow cloak and it makes me laugh so hard (laughs) and that laughter that laughing at death or laughing with death and having it be like this prismatic kind of kitschy look actually makes it feel even more magical to me and this kind of sacred and profane kind of tension that I really love. That's such a big part of Mexican culture too and Mexican culture's relationship to death that's something that i grew up with you know having skulls around the house with my grandma's name on them or my grandma's still alive 
alive and <laughs> and um or you know making altars for a day of the dead and so maybe that has something to do with it is just sort of this comfort with death with taboo with darker subjects but that is always an, an approach that i've tried to cultivate through my life that I don't want to live in a state of denial about the darker aspects of our world. I think it makes you a stronger person to be able to contend with those things and and discuss them and get comfortable with them and, and dis- dissect your relationship with them and see how that can inform your daily life rather than living in fear of it, avoiding it altogether and letting that have some kind of power over you. And I think that that can be applied very universally whether that's about your sexuality whether that's about your gender identity whether that's about how you choose to adorn your body whether that is about dealing with being impacted by the criminal justice system there are so many things to to unlearn shame around absolutely so you're painting a really distinct picture for me of of what it was like growing up with you know these day of the dead altars and so on and i'd love to hear a little bit more about the spiritual systems that you grew up in and when you got into witchcraft specifically as well yeah that's it's such a, it's an interesting lineage to try to trace back when i was a kid when my parents were together they took us to an episcopal church which i didn't love i remember thinking you know in sunday school i i don't really buy this and we stopped going when I was pretty young. And then my mom, not long after, converted to Judaism. So that was a process that we were a part of as far as going to temple with her. And how old were you when she converted? I want to say I was in my early teens, early to mid-teens. Okay. You know, she was studying Hebrew. So it was it was a big process for her that we were sort of along for the ride of. And is she Mexican? Yes. Yeah. So she, um, so my mom's side of the family is Mexican Catholic for the most part. So when we would go visit family, that was a big part of our visits there would often be going to church or going to mass or going to weddings that were always in a Catholic church. So that was something that we grew up with as well. And that was, there's a sort of mysticism that kind of weaves through both of those practices catholicism and and judaism yeah yeah and i think that i was talking with a friend of mine who is venezuelan not long ago we were talking about how present hyperbole and superstition is in latinx cultures and you know i have so many there's so many stories of my cousins uh, telling me like they've met the devil, they woke up and the devil was sitting on their chest or their, their, their statue of the, the Virgin Mary started crying blood or everyone just has all these stories that are constantly swapping or, you know, staying in this old house that, that is in my family in the town of Tequila that is haunted. There's this beautiful courtyard and I had a, like, a kind of a ghost experience there. What was that? So the house, it's this beautiful old, maybe 300 year old traditional courtyard style home and we were staying overnight my cousins refused to stay overnight because they said it was too haunted and I woke up in the middle of the night you know just picture something beautiful right there's cola de burro everywhere like the donkey tail like um, succulents hanging there's like bugamilia everywhere like beautiful flowers and everything outside and tile and it kind of looks like it could be in a an exorcism film. There's like brass <laughs> post beds with like a single crucifix on the wall and the plaster's cracked. Perfect. So I woke up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and I was standing in front of the, the sink and the faucet turned itself on. And I remember thinking I must still be sleeping and I must be dreaming. And this is an old house. It probably just started running and then it turned itself off while I was watching it. And at the time, actually, I think I was very militantly atheistic. I got into punk at a young age and was full on no gods, no masters. Like, you know, I didn't believe in organized religion. I didn't believe in spirituality. I didn't believe in luck. I didn't believe in fate. I believed pretty much only in like human will. And rejecting all of those things was a big part of my politics at the time. And I didn't believe in ghosts either. But having this experience sort of started to change things for me I felt like I couldn't deny the presence of that and I couldn't deny the cultural impact that it had on me I mean well you know when you're into heavy metal and punk rock you're just into the aesthetics of satan worship (laughs) (laughs) everything's like satan this satan that like crosses are upside down and I was really into that stuff and I was always researching you know I was reading like the lesser key of king solomon I was reading all these things about magic but I wasn't practicing it and I was definitely fascinated by it and I think I was drawn to it but I was maybe afraid to take that leap and 
and i was also kind of goth so i think i was like oh i don't want to be trendy or cheesy or just get into this stuff because i feel like it's what i should be doing because of what i look like or the music that i listen to i wasn't into the darker low side magic you know i wasn't into like chaos magic that kind of thing i felt like it wasn't for me but a big part of me getting into magic was getting into herbalism because when I first came to New York, I started dealing with all these health problems and I was working at a health food store at the time. And I just started reading all of these old books from the 70s about women's wisdom and herbalism. And of course, coming across books by Rosemary Gladstar and Susan Weed and kind of these OG green witch herbalists. And I don't think I realized it quite so much at the time how integral magic was to their practices but it crept in along the edges right and and so getting more and more into herbalism i started being more and more open to green magic Mm -hmm. and and that i think became my primary magic practice and i love that about you i love that one might look at you and see all your tattoos and your black and your (laughs) beautiful dark hair and assume that you'd be into the quote-unquote darker side of magic and yet the magic that you found is about nature and healing it, magic yeah it's yeah. it has that lighter more i mean it's a very very strong magic and it's magic not to mess with but it's definitely not satanic <laughs> right right yeah it's not demonic it's not yeah yeah and then i ended up actually taking so i did some workshops with you and in some ways the workshops that i did with you gave me the permission that i needed to explore magic and develop my own practices because I think I was like, I don't know, there's rules. I don't know them. How do I learn what to do? And your approach really was that you can sort of cobble together a magical practice from what you have around you and to really trust your instincts and be intuitive about it, which I think is such an important message. I try to tell people all the time that, you know, even when it comes to tattoo design, if they ask me where I think they should put it on their body, I'm like, what do you think? What's your first thought? What's your instinct? Mm -hmm. Trust your instinct. Mm And that's something that I've tried to train myself to listen to more and try to guide other people in doing too. But that was a big part of developing my spiritual practice is trying to tap into your inner voice, your inner magic and be like, okay, what do I feel like I should be doing right now? What feels right for this ritual? I'm not going to go to the store, go to the witch store and pick up X, Y, and Z that it says in this book. What do I have around me that feels like the right thing? Mm, What's in my kitchen? What's in my bathroom cabinet? I mean, that's traditionally how so much of at least folk magic developed. It was, okay, what's growing in your garden? Yeah, so magic has definitely become more of a, it's definitely a community for me. And everyone I know has such a different approach. Some people are really, really disciplined in how they do it. Some people have transformed it into the way that they make a living. For me, I think the herbalism and the healing has always been a big part of it. I love that. I love that dichotomy of the pain of the needles (laughs) and then like the gentle healing energy of the plants. (laughs) It's really, really great. Just tracking back, I want to talk about your teen years just a little longer because you recently did an art installation where you recreated what I think is your teen bedroom. It's really amazing. For listeners, you should definitely check this out on Tamara's site where you essentially rebuilt your teen bedroom with posters and record albums it's all in black and white Mm -hmm. a lot of this is recreated in ballpoint pen Mm -hmm. can you talk about why you wanted to recreate your teen bedroom through the lens of fine art yeah so when I was in art school I was making a lot of work about punk that was really the subculture I was just so enmeshed in at the time I was so immersed in it I was living in a DIY venue in this illegal space I was doing show posters all the time I was learning how to tattoo going to shows was a big part of how I was socializing I was playing in a band but within this institution of art school I felt like I was being told that that wasn't art that wasn't what I should be looking at that wasn't what I should be drawing from that I should make work about my quote-unquote identity And to me, I was like, this is my identity. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm looking at. This is what I'm living. And, you know, my advisors, whoever wanted me to make work about my cultural identity and about my ethnic identity. And I didn't feel ready to do that. And I didn't feel like that was the right place for me to be doing it. I originally made some of the t-shirts. That was what I started with. And I had this idea of having a very devotional and time-based approach to recreating them. 
to reference both the sort of traditional Chicano prison art medium and also that stereotypical drawing in your notebooks in your classroom, like imagining you know, you're a teen hesher, you're writing Metallica all over everything. Yeah, just doodling and doing all that marginalia. Yeah, and it's this sort of, to me, that's, that's sort of this devotional act where you're finding any moment that you can to affirm your relationship to these bands or this culture that that is... The things you love. The things that you love. And all of the bands were taken from bands that I listened to, recreating tapes, records, posters that I still have. And so the idea was sort of to... I was approaching it as both a dreamscape and as an archaeological site because a lot of my work is about the way that we read certain objects as symbols and what information we can glean from those things, how our own experiences affect our reading of them. So what I was hoping is that people would enter this space and start to look at the things that were in it as as clues to the inhabitant of who, who was living in that room. And what was really gratifying was to see that everyone that came in had some sort of relationship to something in the room. You know, people would be like, oh my God, I had that same poster on my wall when I was a kid. Oh my God, I had those same Doc Martens. Like, and everyone has a memory associated with it. And so recreating everything in black and white was partially about sort of erasing the other signifiers and that making the space a little bit more generic to create room for people to insert their own experiences and their own readings but it was also about experiencing punk as a space of whiteness it was about experiencing punk as a culture that in a lot of ways i felt erased my mexican identity Mm. because i was not seeing intersections of brownness or just being a person of color in punk and that was largely because i was growing up in georgia where there was like one other punk kid in my school Mm -hmm. and they were definitely a white kid (laughs) yeah um But it was also about being in punk spaces where there was a lot of white people appropriating like Zapatista culture or slogans and kind of like... Can you define that for people who might not know what that is? um, So the Zapatista community, they're like an autonomous anarchist community in Mexico. They have sort of, outside of their own community, become a symbol of resistance. I see them being used sort of symbolically or referred to sort of symbolically by communities in the United States who have come to romanticize the idea of like women participating in revolution or the ways that they dress because they have these really distinctive masks right that have these red pom-poms on top so that was a big part of what the installation was about as well was about being into punk and having so much of my identity wrapped up in that and people being like that's for white people Mm -hmm. like and that feeling like i was making a choice that I didn't want to make to step away from my Mexican identity. Mm -hmm. I just love the concept of the installation because I often think of teen bedrooms as shrines. Like mine certainly was when I was growing up. It was plastered, (laughs) plastered with hundreds if not thousands of pictures and poems I loved and art I made and things I ripped out of magazines and you know the faces of people that I admired and aspired to be like you know musicians and artists and pages from comic books everything you could think of and it was such a holy space to me that when my parents moved it was like physically painful thinking about this shrine being dismantled and my mom bless her she's an incredible woman she's an artist too she went and took every piece off the wall and put it all in this beautiful binder for me she archived it and like she took tons of photos and stuff because it's a space I still dream about it's a space where you're really surrounding yourself with like who you want to be and it's also a sanctuary from a world that can be incredibly punishing totally and it's one of the few spaces you have as a young person where you really can just like you said plaster your identity everywhere and really externalize what you feel and what you're angsty about and what you want and what you are listening to on the space all around you in a way that's really visible that word externalize just like started vibrating in the air for me after you said it because it strikes me that's so much of the work that you're doing too also with tattooing you're externalizing or helping people externalize these inner images yeah that's a that's such a part of it I think tattooing is is in a way carrying on that tradition that we engage with when we're young and it's sort of this private it can it can be private it can be more public but this sort of talismanic way of carrying significant things with us carrying them on our body permanently 
and you have a lot of choices about whether you want that to be confrontational, about whether you want that to be secret, about whether you want to keep it private or whether you want to make sort of a louder statement about it. I love that. That gives me chills. I think that's beautiful. So we should probably wrap up. Tamara, can you talk about where people can find you online? You have a beautiful Instagram. Can you just shout out a couple of your links? And then I'm sure there's going to be listeners who are going to want to get tattooed by you. How can (laughs) someone do that? Is that even possible? Yes, that's very possible. I don't have a crazy waiting list like people seem to think that I do. So you can find me on Instagram at Tamara Santibanez. And you can find my website at www.tamarasantibanez.com. On my website, there's a contact form for a tattoo request that goes straight to my email. So that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Perfect. Perfect. Well, there are like 50 other questions I have for you. I know. I feel like I could talk all afternoon. Yeah. Maybe we'll have you come back for a part two sometime. But in the meantime, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us. It was so much fun to talk to you. Yeah. This is all my favorite things to talk about. So thank you for having me. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Tamara Santibanez for bringing her illuminating mind and illustrated body to my Brooklyn apartment. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Please email me at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Pam Grossman. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Chiquita Pascal, Matt Freeman, and Kyle Uuu Enkowitz. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us lots and lots and lots of stars. It makes a huge difference, and I'd be so grateful to you. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have an iPhone, you really might dig my witch emoji for iMessage. You can fill your texts with witches, spellcraft objects, and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors by searching for witch emoji, all one word, in the App Store or by going to witchemoji.com. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I will catch you next time on The Witch Wave.